Welcome to the show. It's episode eight of Imposter Syndrome, a golf podcast in partnership with our great friends at Studio 72, where you can get 15% off all golf prints at studio72.com using code IMPOSTER15. I'm your host, Todd Howe. Joining me as always, club fitter to the stars, the man who can save you strokes on your game, Mr. Sean Fagan. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Todd. Episode eight, representing the eight I made at Rancho Park on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a mixed bag. We um, we played in the first round of the Pinecone Golf Players Tournament at Rancho Park. I started like trash and managed to pick it up after about five or six holes, but my round was over. Yours was a tale of incredible golf and a couple of slip ups that cost you. Yeah, by my count, I think I hit 25 uh, quality shots, including drives, chips, putts, the whole nine approach shots. And yet at the end of the score, the uh, scorecard, I'm looking, I hit two greens in regulation, only 27 putts. So um, it's probably the six or seventh 85 I've shot since Christmas. No birdies at all. I have to say my game feels like it's trending. So we'll see. I got a Pretty good little tip and lesson from Cameron Robinson over at Brentwood today. He came into the shop and showed me a couple pointers. So we're working in the right direction, trying to get a you know a set of eyes on it. But yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it's, you know, it's hard when you're playing good. When you know you're playing good golf and you're not scoring, uh, or you just have a couple of bad holes that really upset a good score, it's hard to take. But I think you got to just keep in mind that the good scores are coming. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have to always have faith that it's going to work out right. But the better you get, the smaller the smaller those margins become. But if I could just put a couple shots on greens in regulation, you know, it certainly solves a lot of problems. You know, I'm at basically two months of playing very poorly by my standards, and yet it feels good. It's just a very strange uh, balance and Hard to not get frustrated, hard to not get let down, but you just have to look ahead and, and know the good days are coming soon. Yeah, and we're going to uh, Oak Quarry next weekend, so that's going to be pretty special. Home of probably the finest par three hole in Southern California. I mean, what does it play from the tees we'll be at? Is it a 200-yard shot? I think it's about a 200-yard shot, yeah. Yeah, with the quarry all the way down the left-hand side. The first time I ever played it, I lost my first ball in the quarry, lost my second ball in the quarry, third ball, uh, pushed it out right deliberately, goes into the greenside bunker, and then I somehow managed to skull that bunker shot into the quarry and round over. Good night. Wow. <laughs> That's golf. Yeah, it's golf. I mean, well, there's a lot of 200-yard par threes around LA as well, 200-plus-yard par threes. Around LA. I don't remember seeing that many 200 yard plus par threes around New England. I'm sure there's some, but man, it's that's a hard shot. I don't care how good you are. It's a hard shot to hit a 200 plus yard shot into a green. Yeah. Yeah. Without question. There are a lot of them and it gets pretty grating. I got to say, like when it's just constantly 200 yards, 200 plus yards, 200 yards, like a good par three doesn't have to be a long par three in my book. The moral of the story is move up a T <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you want to have more fun or two T's. Why not? 
I wish we could. Look, I really enjoyed last week's show with Paolo. We know everyone listening loved it too. We had some great feedback. We're going to have a bunch of other guests on the show in the weeks and months to come. I think uh, it's something that we want to do more of for sure. Yeah, I think uh, having legitimate guests obviously elevates us a bit. It makes the conversation better for the listeners. And, you know, especially if we can get some actual inside information on things to our audience, that would be really cool. And I feel like we're going to continue to be able to do that as we uh, we trudge forward here. Absolutely. I would love to do uh, following this weekend's golf. I would love to have someone on the show that can talk to us at length about the mental game. Yeah, we'll see if Bob Rotella is available, huh? I think he could he could give us a few pointers. <laughs> Who knows? We'll uh, we'll work on that. Coming up on the show, we have all the latest from the PGA Tour. Another quote unquote Cinderella story at the Mexico Open. But the bigger question: Should the tournament exist at all? Anthony Kim is confirmed to start live this week. We got more of that coming up later. We've got some interesting equipment questions lined up for Sean um, later in the show. Bring it, bring it. He loves his equipment talk. But first, I didn't want to leave this until later in the podcast because I think it's far too important. Strangely enough, Ian Fraser brought this same thing up uh, in a recent gaffing video with Paige Spiriniak. And uh, we both witnessed something very interesting on Saturday. We were playing a par three, about 210 to 220. One of the guys that played with us, Matt, hit a four iron and smoked this four iron right at the hole. It hit the green and blew straight through at least 20 yards over the back of the green. I ended up in the rough, leaving himself essentially uh, an impossible up and down. He managed to walk away with a bogey, which I thought was was incredible from where he was yeah but i want to talk about what i think is causing players to lose way more strokes out there on the golf course than they likely realize it centers around the golf ball i know we've talked about this before it's the reason i feel standardizing on one ball is so important regardless of your handicap you know the golf equipment industry is centered around distance and has been for decades clubs that give you more distance balls that go further than their competitors but there's a bigger issue here and i think it's distance versus distance control um so sean in your opinion what percentage of players do you think are playing the wrong ball needless to say there's a tremendous percentage of golfers who don't play the right golf ball for them because they don't even know where to start to look. Having seen one shot and having a ball go that far through the green, how far out of the spin window do you need to be for this to become a big problem during your round? If you have proper speed, okay, and I'm going to use the term men's large t-shirt size speed because I think that's a really good way to describe it. I would um, qualify men's large t-shirt club speed on a six iron, a mid iron around 90 miles an hour. And usually when you get to that point, the need for distance stops uh, being the priority and the need for stopping power and spin rate and ultimately control takes priority. And if you hit the ball far enough off the tee and you hit, let's say a six iron, 185 to 190 yards, you want to start putting brakes on that. You know, I, 
kind of compare it to if you have a Bugatti that goes 250 miles an hour, you better have the biggest brakes possible to slow that thing down because performance isn't just top speed. And I do think that golf balls are marketed that way. But any really good athlete who creates a lot of speed and ball speed and potential height needs to really start thinking about let's get the spin rate high enough so the ball doesn't go beyond the distance that uh, leads to problems, right? And pretty much any golf course in America, nothing good lies over the green. You know, so Matt is like playing a 210 shot with a four iron and he absolutely smokes it. And I would bet his ball speed on that was probably between 135 and 140 ball speed, which is pretty hefty ball speed. But based on how it came in really shallow, it definitely was still diving towards the end. And then it kicked off the green, it looked like, and bounced and bounded over and down the hill across the cart path 20 yards over. His spin rate was probably in the 2000s, probably like 28, 2900. It was flying and knuckling almost like a three wood. And at first, you know, I can't see that far. So I was like, man, I think it's on the back of the edge of the green when we found it. And the group in front who had waved us up was like, no, the thing just screamed over the green. Well, he's just not creating enough spin with the Strixon ZX7 iron that he was playing. And because of that, he can't control a distance, you know, in that 210, 215 range, which is a good number for that club relative to his club head speed. But if his spin rate is dropping below 37, 3800, he's going to have a problem. And I think this ball probably spun almost 20% lower than what he needs it to do. So what's the solution there? The ball is obviously the easiest solution. Changing the ball is the easiest solution, right? Sure. Changing the ball's a relatively easy solution. Um, I would argue that the iron he's playing based on his dynamics and the fact that he de-lofts the club at impact and hits down on it and the dynamic loft is going to be lower with Matt's strike than let's say my strike or your strike might lead me to think that the club head itself is actually creating too low of a launch and too low of a spin to use that particular golf ball because it depends on so many different factors, right? Now, if you deal off the club, you want generally a higher spinning club head to make sure the ball peaks and apexes so it can come down at a relatively steeper descent angle. I happen to know through thousands of fittings that the ZX7, relative to other clubs in that player's cavity back iron category, has a little bit of a higher center of gravity. And for whatever reason, the properties of that club face create less spin. So he's already, if he's playing a low spin ball, he's also playing a low spin head and he creates a low spin dynamic impact position. So all of those things compound and all of a sudden he's over the green. Now, could you change that by putting into a higher spin golf ball like a Pro V1X or a TP5? Sure, you could. And that might slow it down a little bit. Um, if his spin rate goes from 28 or 2900 up to 35 or 3600, chances are he's not over the cart path down there. But with that kind of speed, the last thing he needs as an for an iron in his hand is to give something that promotes even more distance and less spin. So I do think that there's a lot of different variables that you have to take into account that are just that are not just the golf ball. And this is why standardizing on a golf ball is so important because if you play a different golf ball, the equipment that I fit you for might not work as optimally as it did during our test with the golf ball that you should be playing. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, I'll reiterate that I want to fit the golf ball around the green 100%. 
However, in a fitting scenario, if someone's spinning their six iron 3,800 RPM and hitting it 200 yards, I'm probably going to say, hey, I do see a little bit of an issue based on your dynamics with a low spin golf ball, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's why I think fitting is, it's not a one and done thing. Fitting is an ongoing process. So, you know, you have your first fit, you go out, you play, and then you reassess where you're at and then, you know, come back, talk to someone like yourself and uh, see if there's any tweaking that's that's needed. It's a, a continued process until you find the setup that, uh, the ideal setup that works for you. That's my thought on it anyway. Yeah, I think, you know, it's much like golf instruction in this fashion where learning your golf swing and perfecting your move and understanding your swing's signature that makes you and your swing unique is a process that you go through with your PGA professional and your swing coach. Starting to dive deeper into the fitting aspect is a similar process, right? It's just a different discipline. And I think when you're able to form a relationship with a fitter who has the time available to go out and actually witness what's going on, you know, with the golf ball flying. And it has nothing to do with your golf swing. It has everything to do with, okay, how is that golf ball working relative to the dynamic positions and, and speeds and power and movement patterns that you as a player have. And I do think it's a different discipline and it's something that's going to continue to grow over the next five years. Now that we have all these new golfers that basically started playing in the last couple of years and their knowledge is going to be really limited. You know, it's amazing how uh, one shot out of a group of four for 18 holes had led us into this conversation. But I think it's really important, you know, uh, and I, I just think that um, finding the right ball is something that I see far too many people uh, not give enough consideration to. Again, it's the one variable you have total control over. Absolutely. I'm going to do something different here. We have a new sponsor. I'm going to give you something to listen to because uh, I'm I'm just going to wing this, all right? The floor is yours. You probably look at me and think, hey, that guy's successful. Want to know the secret to my success? Work as hard as you can. And when I'm working late into the evening, preparing this show for your listening pleasure, I drink Yes Please Coffee, sourced from the world's best coffee farms. Yes, Please Coffee arrives to you fast, fresh, and fantastically flavorful. So visit yesplease.coffee and use code IMPOSTER to get 20% off your coffee orders. Mmm, Yes, Please. How about that? That's going to be fire flames on the internet. Oh, yeah. Sumi at Yes, Please is a diehard golfer. He went from 22 to an 8 in 12 months. That is hardcore. After I fit him, of course. <laughs> no one probably knows this, but, you know, when we finish, uh, we start recording around 6.30. We finish about 8. Then I probably spend about four or five hours getting everything ready to go up on YouTube and, you know, into your ears. So I'm in bed at probably 3 a.m., after every podcast recording so i need my coffee and uh sumi has and yes please have done me right i am drinking coffee so this is good this is real good and it's great to have them uh, as a as another sponsor of our show 
Yeah, it's awesome. And coffee is my favorite smell of all time. And it's great to support an independent coffee roaster. Like, yes, please. So this is, uh, this is really exciting. Coffee is a fruit, if you don't know. Coffee is a fruit. I didn't know that. Like tomatoes. It's a fruit. You have to take the cherry and the bean is within the cherry. It is one of nature's delicacies. You are my educator. Let's get into the weekly recap. So we're going to start with the PGA Tour. Interesting. Jake Knapp obviously wins the Mexico Open at Vedanta. I'd love to say it was a great tournament, but honestly, it wasn't and not really worth a lengthy recap. Look, I'm not taking anything away from Jake or runner-up Sammy Valamaki, who was trying to be his country's first PGA Tour winner. Jake Knapp, obviously a local boy. I'm really happy for him. It was a career-defining win for him. Only two years ago, he was a bouncer at a nightclub after losing his tour card. And now with this win, obviously, he gets full exemption through 2026. 500 FedEx Cup points, a spot in all remaining signature events, plus the players, the Masters, and the PGA Championship, and the 2025 Century. And he earns a nice, cool 1.46 mil, so you couldn't be happier for Jake Knapp. He was the first player to win a PGA tournament, having hit two fairways all day. On Sunday, yeah. On Sunday, yeah. And so so this is more of the discussion. I mean, look, the PGA Tour essentially should have had a bye week this week. It was the most uneventful tournament I've seen in a hell of a long time, hot off the back of the Genesis. The highest ranked player was 27th in the world, Tony Finau, and he's likely only there because he was defending champion, right? Yeah, he kind of snoozed through it. I think he was 11 under. Still pretty good playing, I guess, but not a, a total non-factor. Yeah, and look, should the PGA be holding events at resort courses? Well, look, it's the Mexico Open, okay? So the PGA Tour licenses the Mexico Open as one of their events, but it is the championship of Mexico. And there was only two Mexican national golfers who made the cut, which I thought was kind of crazy. Like, I know at least a couple other Mexican golfers that should have been there, right? Granted, some went to live. Um, It's an open. They should be able to play for their country. You know, Um, my friend Armando played in the Mexican Open several times. Like, you know, he's from Tijuana. Like all these national opens, the Canadian Open, right? The Mexican Open, the U.S. Open, like they should all be looked at as almost as special. Any, Any national open, I feel like should be considered a big deal. And Is it possible that the PGA Tour, sure, they're elevating it, they're adding more money to it, but does it almost take away from something because it's a letdown? I'd rather it be like playing for the national pride than trying to get FedEx points over it. This is going to be something that they need to explore whenever the game finally congeals back together, right? But there should be like Jake Knapp. I, I mean, look, I don't think he's looking at it going, I am the the Mexico Open champion this year. I'm so excited. I'm going to go to Cabo and be like, I won the Mexican National Championship. You know, I feel like that would be a great accomplishment for more players. And I, I think he looks at it as, hey, I made 1.46 million and I, I made it into the Masters and I'm exempt on the PGA Tour. It'd be nice if there was like a little bit more of a, you know, pride from, from winning it, in my opinion. You can't have a PGA 
tournament event where the top 25 players don't play. It's, I think for me, it's that simple. And it's not just that. I don't think it should be held at a course where, um, you know, a player like Naps uh, strokes gain T to green for the first three rounds is 12.89. And that's just absurd. Courses, you know, it gets back to the that, that argument of the courses obviously not being difficult enough. Um, but, yeah, I think that's hugely detrimental to the, the PGA Tour themselves in having a tournament uh, hot off the back of Riviera um, that is just an absolute deflation uh, of momentum for them. Yeah, but, you know, all of these smaller events – at the end of the day, they give these newer players a platform to come up, which was the whole point of the PGA Tour in the first place. We're, we're not seeing the top players in the world, but a guy like Jake Knapp, right? Now, granted, it was his fifth PGA Tour start. He's a rookie. like, And there's three rookies that have won on the PGA Tour already this year, which is pretty crazy. But, you know, the whole point of the PGA Tour was to allow a golfer to be put on this platform and succeed and given an opportunity to have their life change. And Jake accomplished that. What you're looking at is from the viewer standpoint. I agree. I tried watching it. I watched a couple holes. It was pretty uneventful, right? And Falamaki was fun to watch. He kind of had John Daly vibes a little bit, right? Not the speed. Definitely some scandic. John Daly vibes going on. When they kept saying a nightclub bouncer, I was like, oh, Valamaki must be the nightclub bouncer. I didn't realize Jake Knapp. I mean, dude has pythons, right? And 135 club speed is pretty cool. But, um, you know, I think what's difficult is the PGA Tour is supposed to give guys like Jake Knapp the opportunity to win to then play in the big events. And these events have to continue existing. Otherwise, if it's just the top 80 players in the world, what happens to a guy like Jake Knapp who doesn't have the opportunity to win the Mexican Open and ascend, or ascend up the world ranking points and get into these tournaments? You know, it's not like something that feels important to watch, but like for these individual guys who are busting their ass week in, week out, and, you know, live in the hardest possible way to make an easy living as a professional golfer traveling all over the world just for a chance. You know, these things have to continue existing. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I, w- I want more of these events to exist to give players like Jake the opportunity to continue working up the, the rankings and and have an opportunity to play in these showcase events and the majors. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I just think that the Mexico Open to me felt like a corn ferry tour event at best. And Surely, isn't that why the Corn Ferry Tour exists? For players like Jake Knapp to excel and progress their way into the PGA Tour? Like, I mean... Yeah, to win events like I mean, Mexico Open. By rights, though, you know, with a with a top 25 field, he could have finished top 10. Would he have won? I don't know. I mean, that's, you know... Well, if the top 25 players in the world all played, would Jake have even gotten in? Would Sammy Villamaki even gotten into the field? Probably not. You know, I actually think that the Mexico Open creates the the reality that there is a meritocracy still in the golf world. Again, it might not be the most interesting stuff to watch, but without the actual meritocracy of working up from the Canadian tour 
to the corn Ferry tour to the PGA tour in a, you know, a, a, an alternate event or, you know, a, a B list event, if you will, like the Mexican open, like, I mean, these players still have a chance to, to win that event, play their best round and, and then actually create a future for themselves. I mean, you take that away, you have a bye week. I mean, then it just becomes the top hundred players in the world playing against each other all the time, which is a totally different league. And I don't think that's good for the golf world in general. I think what happens is eventually all of these young players hit the wall and they don't make it. Now, can you have a separate league for the top hundred players in the world that suck up all the TV rates? Yeah, I guess so. That's probably going to happen. But if you don't have the feeder system to get to that top 100, there's just no point for anyone to try and make a career of this. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I just do not think that the PGA Tour should have an event when none of the top 25s are in there. Big news in Live Golf. Anthony Kim, it's official. He is back. He is definitely starting this week in uh, Jeddah. As excited as I am for Anthony Kim to be back, if he doesn't perform this weekend, it's pretty much all over, right? I mean, it can only go one or two ways. He's either going to play lights out or he's just just going to be pretty average. No, I think if he plays terrible this week, no one's going to care. All eyes are going to be on the live event the following week stateside. Because no matter what he does, we're going to wake up to look at scores, right? We're going to be 7 a.m. in California, and he's already played 18 holes in Jeddah. So we're going to know, like, wow, do you play good or bad? If he plays good, there's going to be a rush to the YouTube channel for Liv. If he plays badly, I mean, we never got a chance to see it live anyway, so who cares? Everyone's going to be hyped to watch him come to stateside and play. Now, if that fails and he shoots 80, then yeah, he's probably just plah, right? It's over. But if he if he comes out to America and puts up a 66 or 67, which is going to be a pretty easy setup, I would imagine. And you know, Greg Norman has a lot, you know, uh, vested in him. He better play well for for Greg's sake over the next two weeks. But yeah, this week there's no pressure on him. I don't think. I don't know. We're going to agree to disagree on a on a, on a couple of things right now. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good to be. Joaquin Neiman climbing up the official world golf rankings with a win on the Asian tour and earning himself an invite into the Masters, which I think personally is very justified he's such a good player there's no question he should be at the masters you know he also won the first live event at mayakoba and he's in great form who else should be at the masters that potentially isn't you know cameron smith is going to be there brooks is going to be there dj's going to be there bubba's going to be there bryson's going to be there like i don't even know who else is over there i mean joaquin neiman should probably be there too because it'd be silly to think he's not one of the 70 best players in the world taylor gooch i think taylor gooch is good enough to be in the master i i just don't care at all about taylor gooch when you don't have any legacy and you just take the money like think of all of the trials and tribulations that create a proper tour player and just skip all of those right like you need to go through missing cuts and you need to go through living in a house with multiple people because every great tour player, except for a very select few like Tiger Woods, for instance, basically struggled and failed and learned and then achieved. And when you come out of college, 
I, did he win on the PGA Tour? He, I think he got one win on the PGA Tour. Good for him. But when when you take the $30 million or so and you don't really go through any trials and tribulations, like you're just taking the easy route. I don't care at all about Taylor Gooch. He might be a good player. I don't know. I don't care. He said that a live event was as exciting as the Ryder Cup, you know, and that kind of just like... I'm out. Look, I think he's good enough to be playing in the Masters. At least I would love to see him in there just to see whether he crashes and burns or actually plays well. I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see how Bryson will play. It's a par 68 Augusta National for Bryson, so I'm sure he's going to play lights out like he always keeps telling everyone. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Look, the upside of Liv not getting official world golf ranking points uh, right now is that the Asian tour has seen an influx of players, which is great for spectators all over Asia, you know. Um, And I think that's only a good thing for the game of golf. So there's a little bit of an upside. John Rahm's saying that if he hadn't won a major, um, he probably wouldn't have made the jump to Liv. I think had he not won the Masters, he wouldn't have made the jump. But it's like, no shit, John. You're in the Masters for the rest of your life. No shit. <laughs> Take the $520 million and run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he made a super smart play. You know, golf will have sorted itself out in the next two years, and he's got enough exemptions that he's able to do what he wants. Yeah. He said Tiger didn't respond to a text like he needed to explain to Tiger, you know, but that was interesting. Tiger's really taken a pretty strong stance even privately about this, which is interesting. I guess he's holding on to the very last shred of his legacy before, you know, it it inevitably comes to an end. There's no way he's playing Champions Tour events. People are talking about like he's going to play Champions Tour events. There's no chance he's going to bother playing Champions Tour events. No. He he would caddy for Charlie any day of the week before he played a Champions, Champions Tour event. Yeah. He was never going to play Champions Tour events. No. No, he doesn't need to. We talked about the golf ball earlier. I want to talk about the return of the Sevenwood, the Heavenwood. Did it Um, ever leave? Yeah, it did leave. It did leave. It left for a while and it came back. I mean, look, you don't think it's kind of – I think the Sevenwood's made a huge resurgence in the last two years. Golf courses have gotten longer and people are starting to understand the benefit of descent angle. And that's why the seven wood is back. Tell me real quick, the difference between the seven wood and an iron of similar yardage. Let's say my four iron or three iron, 20 degrees, 21 degrees, somewhere in that range. And then a seven wood's about the same 21 degrees. Biggest difference is obviously number one, the fairway woods a lot bigger. Um, than the iron head. So you can put the center of gravity much lower to the ground and further back from the club face, which naturally makes it launch higher and spin more and quite frankly, easier to make good contact with. And secondly, the seven wood is playing about 41 and a half inches, whereas that three iron is going to play 39 and a half. So you're going to be able to swing the seven wood faster. You're going to ultimately hit it higher. You're going to create more spin. Uh, The only benefit to the three iron really is you can maybe hit it a little bit lower for a certain shot and you can hit it out of a slightly worse lie because there's less surface area of the club to grab the uh the rough other than that i mean seven woods pretty money it's a very useful club and you see it all over the pga tour it certainly should be in more amateurs bags couldn't agree with you more dude i've it's been a game changer for me 
as you saw on the 12th hole on Saturday. Oof, that was a seven wood? Almost went in. That was a seven wood to a foot from 210. Not bad. That was a pretty yeah. saucy shot. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Hey, let's talk about Willie Z. He's uh, playing tightless T-150s four through pitching wedge. Yeah, wild. How much of a benefit is he getting? Yeah, so the 150 has maybe two degrees of a stronger loft profile than the T100, which is generally kind of like the most commonly used uh, tour cavity back on the PGA Tour. So a six iron has 30 degrees of loft on a 100, 28 on a 150. A lower center of gravity on the 150 as well. So it launches higher, spins less. Um, the 100, despite having more loft, tends to launch maybe even a little lower than the 150. And the 150 is noticeably larger in blade size as well. Uh, four millimeters. I mean, it's very small, but you know, this is a game of millimeters. And what I found really interesting about this is, you know, Will Zalatoris is a guy with probably a 140 ball speed on a six iron, which is tremendous speed. And I've watched it on TrackMan, you know, during golf tournaments. Just for reference, 140 is my driver ball speed. And he's hitting 140 with a six iron. So there's the comparison. 120 ball speed with a six iron is pretty good. At the amateur ranks, that means you're hitting the ball pretty solidly with some speed. So 140 is pretty unique. And he plays a 1X, so maybe he creates a lot more spin. He's going to create a little bit more spin with his speed anyway. But I don't know. Like I talked to one of his golf buddies who plays with him all the time in Texas, and he basically said that it was he moved to the 150 for mishits. And he also likes the 150 being a little bit stronger lofted because since his injury, he had this really unique surgery for his age. He just doesn't have to quote unquote go at it as hard, which is like crazy to me. He probably hits a six iron. I mean, if Rory hits his six iron 206, Will's probably 206 to 210. I mean, considering he probably has a little bit lower spin as well um, with the 150 in his hands. I'm just shocked that he's playing it because I preach all the time. If you have speed like that, you want to slow the golf ball down using spin. Uh, Will doesn't feel like that's right for him. And he finished second at Riviera. So I guess it's working out great. And I look forward to seeing more. Yeah. And I'm really interested to see how he's going to perform on his iron shots at Augusta. Yeah. Keep your eye open for how that ball lands and reacts when it lands uh, on the on those really hard, fast surfaces. And the players too. I mean, that's a super tight course as well. There's no room for error at uh, TPC Sawgrass either. Yep, for sure. So keep an eye on that, but I imagine he's probably got it figured out. I wanted to just talk about wedges. We talked about wedges in previous episodes. I want to. I want your take on should players consider using wedges from different manufacturers? I don't know. I feel like you could look at a wedge as an individual. You know, I my my good friend Joe Benson, uh, who's a PGA pro, always kind of came up with this idea that a putter is like a person. And I really like that. I use that all the time when I'm talking putters. Wedges are very similar as well. You know, you have to, they're your scoring clubs. They offer options and versatility and creativity. So it would be silly to say you're you shouldn't consider playing different wedges from different manufacturers. There's only so many different ways that you can 
manufacturer a shot with a wedge. And I do think that all the manufacturers have a pretty good uh, coverage over pretty much any use case with sole design. But some of these high toe wedges are interesting for certain types of shots around the green for certain players. Um, you know, a gap wedge or an approach wedge. We've talked about this before, Todd, where, you know, you might want a less explosive feel off the club face, you know, for that intermediate birdie range full swing. There's no rule against it. I think the benefit of having a uniform set of wedges is purely look and feel. And if you start going outside of that, it doesn't mean you can't find a tool that's going to work for a very specific need. But I think you have to find yourself in that scenario time and time again to really start experimenting beyond the scope of a uniform set of wedges. It's an option for sure, but there's not a pressing need to do it. I think that's a that's a path that you go down on a personal journey and end up coming up with the solution for a specific shot that you have at your local golf course all the time. And look, just uh, after last week's episode, or whether it was the week before, we were talking about set wedge versus uh, specialty wedge. I have gone to the set wedge, took it out for the first time on Saturday, and didn't even use it. <laughs> you want to do a Tales from the Bay? Yeah, I mean, real quick, Tale from the Bay. A couple days ago, fitting a, a member at one of the elite private clubs around L.A., and he had been fitted down at TPI for the original concept iron. This is a big game improvement iron. And with game improvement irons, you know, a lot of players who tend to get into them aren't necessarily the best ball strikers. This guy was pretty strong. He was a lacrosse player at a D1 college. And he swung really hard, but he didn't create a lot of speed. That's a common thread that you see with a former athlete that just kind of lacks good technique, basically. And I'm looking at his clubs and his hands are almost dragging his knuckles on the ground at setup. And I'm like, wow, this guy's hands are so low. And I'm watching him hit these, these shots that look like he's swinging a high lie stick. Almost the ball is just coming out dead. No spin turning over dead left. His hands are low. The toe is sitting up in the air, something awful. And I'm just looking at this and I'm seeing hook after hook I said, let me see this club and five degrees upright. It was a 67 lie angle on his six iron to the point where if you tried to bend it back, it probably would have snapped. This is, you know, a TPI, they fit him for this, which is crazy to me because the only real realistic situation where you would ever need to put someone in a club like that is if one, they're seven feet tall and the club's four inches over length because their hands are going to be crazy high off the ground. This was not the case. It was the opposite. Or... He has no opportunity to close the club face whatsoever. And I'm only talking about if they're going through the process of trying to throw a Band-Aid on a poor swing. Essentially, I put him into the new version of that club with a standard lie angle, and the ball went dead straight over and over and over again. And there was nothing else to really do during the fitting. And I think he kind of walked away going like, well, don't I need like custom specs? Don't I need like a different lie angle? Don't I? It's like, no, you don't. You need a club that's not Frankenstein. And the shame of it is this is a, at the time, a $500 per iron head set that they sold him and destroyed by bending it five degrees up. 
And I thought that was a great little tale from the Bay over the last week. And it just goes to show you that, you know, you have to be careful when you're working with anyone, even at some of the most elite fitting studios in the world, that you just don't want to go too far in one direction. And uh, that's a quick tale from the Bay. Let's do some rapid fire. Rapid fire. I know you struggle with the rapid fire questions for me, but we can play off these together. All right. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. If you could play around with once I got this off, uh, I got this off. I stole this. Okay. I stole this today off social media. If you could play around with one sports person, one actor and one musician, who would they be? Actor Kevin Costner. Absolutely want to play with Kevin Costner one day. Two, athlete, I mean, dead or alive? Yeah. Arnold Palmer. I've decided I'd rather play with Arnold Palmer than Tiger Woods because I think Arnold Palmer would be more fun. And three, musician. I've heard Kenny G's a pretty good stick. And no big deal. I did make an ace at Sherwood one day. And he walked in with his, uh, with his push cart and they're like, Kenny, Sean just made an ace. And he goes, all right, man. Nice. And then he walked away. That was my, my first interaction with Kenny G. So I'd like to call him into Arnold Palmer, Kevin Costner, Kenny G let's go. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go with Tiger, Bill Murray and Snoop Dogg. That's going to be one hell of a fun round, right? I I wouldn't be able to to stomach Bill Murray. I couldn't. I, I don't think he's funny, honestly. I just don't think he's funny. <laughs> I, I don't think Tiger would want to talk to you. I don't think Bill Murray would be funny. And Snoop Dogg, I mean, I'm sure that'd be fun, I guess, yeah, at least once. I, but. I, did have, I did have Larry David in there, you know, as my as my actor. And then I was just thinking, man, he would probably annoy the shit out of me after nine holes. Yeah. I'll take my foursome. You take yours and we'll be, we'll be very happy. How about that? Yeah. I'm down with that. Perfect. Least favorite golf hole you've ever played. Oh, course and hole. Course. And And we could say worst golf hole you imaginable. (laughs) Like let's, let's just go there. Well, what's the one at Hanson Dam that's straight up the hill? Tan at Hanson Dam. Hanson Dam's a pretty bad golf hole. Um, Are there other really bad golf holes? Yes, there's a lot of really bad golf holes. Um, Hanson Dam comes to mind, number one, I think. Yep. that's winner. That that's, that's the, the winner. official winner. That's the winner. Yeah. That's a I'm, terrible. That's golf. the worst hole I've ever seen. Or I will say, um, the first hole on the Masters course at Braemar is a awful golf hole as well. That I mean, Braemar's got a couple of them. Uh, now I know they've recently redone it, so I haven't been there in a couple of years, and I hope they've fixed some of those. But some of the holes, especially when you're working with the land, which is right on the side of the mountains overlooking LA and the valley, there just isn't enough land to put golf holes. So, you know, if some guy comes in and says, Hey, we're going to build a golf course here and the architect can only work with the land. So you don't really want to blame the architect. You kind of want to blame the developer for forcing an architect to put a golf hole on certain pieces of land. Um, some pieces of land just do not deserve a golf hole. 
So I would say the 10th at Hanson Dam is a terrible golf hole. And some of the holes around Braemar, uh, number one master's course, that's a pretty terrible hole too. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm struggling to find anything remotely contending with 10 at Hanson Dam. <laughs> such a bad hole. If you are not uh, from Southern California, look up the 10th hole at Hanson Dam. It is just God awful on what is actually, you know, a, a really enjoyable course. There are some, there are some pretty nice golf holes on there. I think eight is probably in my top. It would be, it would be in my 18 best public golf holes. Wow. The eight hole and Hanson Dam. Hmm. I think it's gorgeous. I've only played there a couple times. It's pretty cool vibe up there, you know, but the last time I played there, there was a guy with a Kobe jersey on in front of me with a bong three foot high and he was just taking rips on the green during like, I think it was the second hole, the par three, second or third hole, just like four guys with jerseys. This guy had a yellow Kobe jersey and he brought out King Bong, you know, it was like that tall. And uh, <laughs> that was quite a quite a sight to be seen. I don't think he had shoes on either, but sometimes you get that around L.A. <laughs> I got to say, it's pretty dedicated to bring a bong that big out into a golf course. You must be a serious smoker. <laughs> it might have been longer than his putter, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Fair play. Um, next question. Would you rather shoot a 66 and not play for a year or play all year and shoot between one and four over? Well, I've been doing the latter for, I don't know, 10 straight years when I play well. I like the grinds. I want to earn that 66 and maintain it. All right. You Fair play. What about you? Oh, yeah. One and four over. I'm cool with that. And I, I got yeah. no need to shoot a 66. I'm not a tour player. You're up. Yeah. It's, you know, look. That was a pretty dumb question, but I, I know you haven't, I know you like got an inkling to want to go on to pass. So I just thought I'd throw a oh. 66 in there, like go super low and just see if you'd bite. You six, say 61 or 62, maybe there's a conversation there. 66. I nearly, you were four under at one stage the other week. Oh, weird. Yeah. You yeah. think people would want to watch that? I don't know. It's nearly out. All right, Rory for a day is coming out. I'm not far off from finishing that, so it's imminent. Um, if you had a year to prepare for Augusta National, but you could only play it right-handed, do you think you would break 100? No, and I wouldn't want to do that, honestly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, it's hypothetical. I think I can break 100 right-handed if you give me a couple weeks for sure, but... Uh, no, I wouldn't bother playing Augusta right-handed. Lefties win there anyway. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, there's how many? How many lefties have won in the last 25 years? You Bubba got Bubba won with twice. two. Phil's won three times. Phil's won three times. That's five. Yeah. Who are we forgetting? That's good. That's 25% in the last, well, 25 years. That's 20%. Are we forgetting anyone? I don't know if we're forgetting. Mike Weir. Mike Weir. Boom. Yeah. Tiniest shoes I've ever seen on a golf course. So six out of 25 left-handed players have won the Masters in the last 25 years. That's pretty good odds. Yeah. And the other five have been, five of those have been Tiger Woods. All right. Which sport do you think you could have competed at a higher level than any other? You know, you could say basketball because there's five guys on the team. You're not going to get tackled in the open field. 
if you can dribble and you can pass a little bit, there's still a role for you, right? It might not be a high level, but I could have at least played high school basketball. <laughs> I'll tell you that. I didn't think I could at the time, but I look back on it and I go, man, I wish I played high school basketball. I would have been the shortest kid in the entire state probably while I was back in high school, but there's still a role that you can play, you know? So I, I would probably argue that I wasn't going to run anyone over in football. Um, lacrosse, I wouldn't have been able to take the the pounding hockey. I wasn't a good skater baseball. I didn't have the vision. I couldn't see the ball once it started moving past 65, 70 miles an hour. So I'd have to say basketball. I could probably, I, I can go out, you know, rec league or old man league and, and still move it. But even when you get a couple really good players on the court, you know, as long as you kind of know what you're doing and you don't, you know, panic, you can still play with some pretty good players. So I'd say basketball. Love it. You get some Steve Kerr vibes. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. He, he's getting paid 15 million a year now. So pretty yeah. good living. I'm going with badminton. I was at one point top number one in my school in high school at badminton. And I was pretty damn handy at that sport. So uh, I, I think if there's one sport I could have excelled at, it'd be that one. Played a lot of lacrosse. Uh, my brother actually played for Australia in the World Championships. He had all the talent. I was the one who always had to grind heavily at sport to in order to, to play well. So, But badminton was, yeah, that was my jam. What about pickleball? Uh, you any good at pickleball? No, pickleball in Australia is called half-court tennis. <laughs> Branded for America. Yeah, if you said pickleball in Australia, an Aussie would go, what the hell are you talking about, mate? <laughs> um, what is your most annoying golf commentary phrase or saying? Anything Paul Azinger says. Anything? The, the hyperbole is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it just gets to the point where it's like, yeah, we get it. It's a hard shot. Wow, it's really tricky. I'll, I'll say this. I'll say uh, I was conditioned by my dad when he was watching golf tournaments. Anytime they'd be like, oh, that's a really tough chip shot. My dad would sit there and be like, the ball's sitting up. I can hit that shot. I love that. That was always his favorite thing to say when he's watching golf tournaments and still is his favorite thing to say. And uh, critiquing that it's not a hard shot. It's really easy. Let me take my 42 degree pitching wedge and hit a flop shot with it. Cause that's what he would do. Um, and it always makes me laugh. What's yours? <laughs> uh, well, look, I'll talk about my dad. He cannot stand Jordan Spieth talking with his caddy. He just wants Spieth to shut up and hit the ball. Stop talking. Um, great drama. Great drama. Yeah. Yeah. Here is my all time, most grating commentary phrase or saying fell in love with the line. He mm. fell in love with the line, forgot about the speed. Sure. Like, sure. Give it up. I don't want to hear another commentator say fell in love with the line, forgot about the speed ever again. What pro actually falls in love with the line to a point where they forget about the speed. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I do think the commentators dumb down their analysis big time to get the 20, 30 handicappers to to understand. And I think it does them a disservice because you're basically suggesting the 20, 30 handicappers don't have the capacity to think properly at golf. 
And that's ridiculous. I don't know. I just think that most people, because golf is so hard, um, most people who are good at it kind of, they gatekeep a little bit, the information, they gatekeep the information on how to get better. Because I do think that if more 20 handicappers understood what they're actually supposed to do and how to think, they would be able to be much better at golf. <laughs> As someone who talks about golf all the time, eventually you kind of get tired of saying the same things over and over and over again. So you find easier things to say that save you your sanity a little bit. You can only, you know, you have to pick your battles. If you're if you're ever within six feet of me and you say fell in love with the line, you're gonna gonna get a smack upside the head. That's just, it's done. It's done. They've been saying it since television was invented. I'll keep and, that in mind. Uh, I just cannot. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna do it now. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, you're giving that, me like yeah, I'm an older next, brother. Like that's what I do. I push buttons. Next one I send long, you're gonna say fell in love with the line. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Uh, I'll take it as a joke, but yeah, don't anyone else ever say that. Like, it's done. Give it up. All right. Thanks for listening to the show. We got to go. Thank you to my co-host, Mr. Sean Fagan. Legendary as always. Smash that like button. We need more smashes. We need your reviews and ratings wherever you're watching or listening. Blanket email your work colleagues for a week. Just do it. Do what you got to do. You can follow us on Instagram at Imposter Golf Pod. You can follow us on YouTube at Imposter Golf Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at Encino Golf Lab. And you can follow Mr. Sean Fagan on Instagram at SKF Golf. If you have any questions regarding fitting and building, send us a DM on Instagram at Imposter Golf Pod. Don't hold back. Send us those DMs. But until next week, please don't forget, if you fall in love with the line, then for the love of God, do not forget about the speed. Adios. Peace.